Hello, and welcome to this final episode of Tuchel Story, brought to you today straight from a corner of my garden. It is late August, and around me the forest and garden are preparing for winter. In my garden where the lawn ends, tall foliage takes over. The lupin stalks cover this space. Their tall, elegant flowers fill the views in shades of pink and purple in the month of June, and have now withered entirely, but their seemingly dead stalks still bear life. The dusty-coloured pods hide chubby green seeds, preparing to rest the cold winter before the cycle of life will ensure its growth again next year. If I were now a responsible gardener, I would pull the lupins from their roots, stuff the stalks into strong sacks, being careful not to spill any seeds, and deposit the dying plants to be incinerated at the Municipality Collection Centre. Once native to North America, the lupin was brought to Europe by enthusiastic and pioneering horticulturists at the end of the 19th century to add colour and elegance to our gardens. The lupin has now become a weed. The dictionary would define a weed as a plant growing where it is not wanted. Rows of lupin now flower in June along kilometre-long stretches of Swedish country roads. An invasive, unwanted, foreign species. The fight is now on to exterminate it. Reading articles about responsible gardening, I could not help reflecting that the lupin and I share a story. We are both seen as foreigners in a country we now call home. I am an immigrant, an identity I feel comfortable with and that is undisputed. A relationship bound by love brought me here. To Sweden 11 years ago. Like the lupin, I have adapted to my new country. My first cinnamon buns were hard as tennis balls, and my first attempt at cross-country skiing ended in tears and frozen fingers. But that has changed. My roots have been replanted, and I have grown to cherish long summer days and long for winter's sub-zero temperatures that allow for rest. I have also propagated. My daughters identify themselves as Swedish first. In my neighbourhood, a lake valley shaped by the Ice Age, everyone knows where the Indian lives. I can bake buns, speak fluent Swedish without a clear accent, but my skin colour gives me away, and I am grateful for that, because I am still an immigrant and proud to be one. I have adapted to and embraced the culture of my new home while I still prefer rice to potatoes and season my oven-baked salmon with coriander and cumin. My daughters, though, did not need to adapt. They are naturally better at balancing on ice and instinctively know how to mouth their Swedish vowels. 
The 6th of June every year is celebrated as Swedish National Day. And a few years ago, on this day, I was welcomed as a new Swedish citizen in my municipality together with about a dozen other immigrants. Naturalized, like the Lupin. Interestingly, it is just the 6th of June that has also been appointed as the big Fight the Lupin Day. Organized by the Field Biologists, a national society run by keen environmentalists. This day, responsible gardeners, environmentalists, make communal efforts to exterminate the lupin. The symbolism of this comparison inhibits me from pulling the last lupin up from its roots. A close friend and an avid gardener reminded me that lupins are not humans, but the comparison has helped me reflect over how human societies are always, consciously or subconsciously, trying to shape evolution. These are the things my garden is telling me today, and today's episode, brought to you from a corner of this garden, will be the last in this series. For those of you who are interested in reflecting more about how our gardens both reflect as well as shape who we are as people, I can warmly recommend a blog by Marshall Farrell, also known as Afroliage, called These Are The Things My Garden Tells Me. Much of her writing has been an inspiration behind today's episode. I leave you now with these thoughts and sounds from my garden to mull over this winter. Thank you for listening and take care. You are listening to Tuchel's Story with me, Janaki Brolin, and now of course it is time to travel back to the Himalayas. Pear and I are travelling higher up into the mountains where humans continue to adapt and mould themselves to survive in their natural surroundings. Thirteenth of May, two thousand and six. A lot has happened since I last wrote. After our four school camps, Upon our return from Badrinath, we had planned to make a day trip to the village of Pranmati. However, Friday night we were riddled with diarrhoea and were vomiting all night. It took three days for me to recover. And then one morning I braved a few pieces of watermelon for a late breakfast before setting off to make a home visit that I had promised one of the villagers. The father of a pregnant lady had met me in the market a few days ago and had asked me to come and check on his daughter who was heavily pregnant. I was surprised to find the woman herself greeting us. She was well, she said. Her blood pressure was normal. The fetus was lying as it should, and the head seemed engaged low in the pelvis. According to her dates, Pear and I decided she still had at least two weeks to go, 
We were surprised for the second time when she said that she had had an ultrasound done. I realised that people were not short of money in Sithiel. Simply access and often awareness was lacking. It almost seemed as if the lady was somewhat indifferent to our visit. She was feeling just fine, and as is often the case in India, I realised that the family were more concerned than the patient herself. Satisfied that all was well, we left and began to make our way down again. Halfway down the hillside, my watermelon breakfast reappeared, while two curious schoolboys looked on as ever. So once back in our room, we made very simple kitchery for lunch, and I remembered my childhood, my mother making bland, sloppy kitchery for the days when we were off school because of diarrhoea. The following Sunday morning, we were up and ready, feeling fit for fight, and set off for the distant village of Suthol. We stopped at Paltindhar on the way, and had hoped for some lunch, but did not find the usual offer of roti and dal as we often had previously at small villages. Instead, we inquired after the midwife, but had little encouraging response, and I was beginning to learn that in some villages, the NGO-appointed midwife was simply an appointment and lesser reality often due to the combination of erratic pay and poor acceptance of new ideas and training by the locals. Instead, we tried to look for the small village temple that Pear had spotted with his binoculars as we were approaching the village. But the little temple was locked, and the view across to the mountains was clouded by imminent rain. Pear and I struggled to light a few incense sticks against the rising wind, while a small group of village girls looked on giggling and staring, and we were getting used to being tourist attractions ourselves. As we asked around looking for somewhere to buy lunch, we were welcomed into a rather large, posh-looking house with a satellite dish outside. The man of the house asked us to sit down and offered us two glasses of water before he began to tell us the story of his life. He explained how he had returned to this, his ancestral home for a holiday, from his modern home in Gujarat. He then went on to tell us what he thought of the caste system. In his opinion, the caste system was a means of breeding good seed and driving natural selection akin to how a farmer selects his crop. I was beginning to feel uncomfortable in his company and at an appropriate moment we thanked us for his hospitality and moved on towards our destination. Suthol. We arrived at Suthol hungry and a little wet. We were welcomed here as mere tourists. At least a two-day trek from the nearest road, the villagers here were barely interested in the fact that we had come from an NGO. I suspect the villagers were not used to visitors with a purpose. The village, however, was familiar with modern trekkers on their way to Rupkund and we found a comfortable private room for 100 rupees a night. The villagers were busy sowing and planting for the start of the season. The village was quiet as people had moved on to higher settlements for the summer. Income for the fields was hard-earned. However, we learned that families may welcome cash from finding a rare kind of herb from the ice in Bedni Bugial, higher up in the valley. Apparently, Each little piece attracted 10,000 rupees. 
Curiously, this treasure was sold to agents, and no one seemed to know where it went or what it was used for. It had only been a recent discovery, we were told. It is a curious reality that in this land of ancient herbal remedies, the science of Ayurvedic medicine is dying, while the modern world is rediscovering and exploiting it. In Sutol, we found satellite televisions and met with electronic salesmen from Tibet. There was a market here for material goods, where goods are carried at least 16 kilometers on backs of humans or horses. Yet, there were no toilets, bathrooms or equipped kitchens. For, for centuries, and all over the world, man has counted his success by how much his money can buy. The following day, we took a day trip from Sutol to the summer settlement of Tantra. It was an idyllic setting. As we approached the village, we saw villagers scattered amongst the fields, and we were welcomed cheerfully by a bunch of children. The magnificent peaks of Trishul and Nandakoti rose high just before us, and the little settlement emerged from nowhere from behind the trees, like a child of heaven itself. A little girl showed us a tiny ancient Shiv temple nestled beneath an old tree. It was peaceful, and only Himalayan birds could be heard when we sat here for a few moments. All the way up to the village we have been met with children and women. On explaining who we were, we were always presented with an outstretched hand and a request for a medical check. And as always, on asking what the medical complaint was, the reply was, Have a look and you tell me. I had a very enlightening day, watching how the people of Sutol continue to live up here at what seemed to me as the end of the world. The children were surprised that there weren't mountains such as these in our village. We returned to Sithil after two nights in Sutol via the village of Kanoal. We met only two Scottish trekkers on their way from Bedni Bugyal on our way down. Otherwise the path was deserted, except for Himalayan birds that kept Pear busy with his book and binoculars. I noticed here how the forest was much more varied, unlike the more homogeneous pine tree plantations lower down in the valleys. We returned to Sithil exhausted, but amazingly refreshed, and baffled by the amount we had learned about human life and its existence in nature.